You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. There's a story that goes, you've got to see it to believe it. There's another story that sounds like this, you've got to believe it to see it. I think the story you choose first depends on whether your inner world or your outer world is more important to you. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest is a man who has played successfully in both worlds. Today, he plays mostly in the inner world. And guess what? His choice enriches his outer world and the inner and outer worlds of the people he touches. He qualifies to share his thoughts with you today because he's a man who truly changed his story. We're talking about a guy who lived in Manhattan. That alone takes a warrior's energy. I know, I've lived there. And his work was in the fast-paced industry of real estate finance and marketing. He created success by thriving and surviving in the corporate world for 17 years. Today, he's a certified health and lifestyle coach and registered yoga teacher. His passion is to help you and me find balance in every area of our lives. I'm thrilled and honored to introduce him to our show, Michael Cohan and Mukunda Chandra Das, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. How you doing today? I, you were the first person who has ever pronounced my name correctly on a podcast. Oh, I'm, I'm, you made my day. Thank you. And, and for those of you who got confused, they said, well, he introduced two people. Yeah, because you're going to hear about Michael Cohan, who was this individual living into one story, and Mukunda Chandra Das, who was the individual living into his most recent story. And with that, I want to know, what did you dream about becoming when you were a child? If anything. <sighs> That's a good question. So... 
when I was really little, I was just a normal kid growing up in New Jersey, played soccer, played sports, and really just was on this a normal American path. And at some point in my high school life, I took a sociology elective, and this teacher had us watch uh, this great movie. It's one of my favorite movies called The Dead Poets Society by Robert with Robert Williams. Mm-hmm. And we did a whole like semester on sociology around this movie and the concepts concepts in this movie based on societal norms. And at the end of the semester, she had us climb up on our desks and taught us to try to look at life from a different perspective, like they did in the movie, saying that the path that you're on today or what you've been taught might look differently if you look at it from a different standpoint. And didn't really change my life then. That was the seed that was planted in, in me. And I was on a projection of you know, going to college, graduating from college, and getting a job in corporate America. And I was raised that that was how you become happy, is just get a corporate job and climb up a big, giant corporate ladder. So when I was a kid, that was my goal and my dream. What wow. Ha- huh. hmm. Interesting. What happened was when I climbed up that ladder and I looked around, I saw that I didn't like what I saw. And so I spent 10 years of this 16 years working in corporate America trying to find another ladder to climb up. Hmm. Let me ask you, what did you like about the corporate world, if anything? I don't think there's anything wrong with working in corporate America. I actually think that there is a sort of um, civil war going on within corporate America where there's old old world, my old world economy mindset versus new world mind, economy mindset. And I was part of the old world mindset where you, whatever you did, you just did what you needed to succeed. And it was very competitive and it was very, um, it was very challenging in that aspect. And I liked that. I liked the competitiveness. I liked that there was always a goal to get to the next level of your career, to climb up the mountain, to get to the next hill, to get to the next ladder, to climb up the bigger mountain. I loved it. What I didn't like is as I climbed up that ladder, I started to change who I was as a person, my morals. And when I got to a certain point up that ladder and I had money and I had success and I had a girlfriend and I had a nice apartment and I was able to, you know, go on nice vacations, my outer world of success was in line with what I was trying to accomplish. But my inner world of success of what I valued internally was not being fulfilled. And so I was feeling imbalanced and I didn't like what I saw. I like mm. the competitiveness. I like the drive, and I like the I like the the pushing yourself to achieve something. But I didn't like the cost that it did for me. I didn't like what I had to sacrifice. Mm. Uh, by the way, what was your specific work in the corporate world? I know the industry, but what did you actually do? I did everything in real estate. I did real estate residential brokerage. I did real commercial brokerage. I worked in new construction in terms of like financing business development. I worked on marketing, coming up with brands for different property developments. I did financial modeling. I did 
team leadership, managing leasing offices. I, I worked in pretty much almost er, like not every field of real estate, but lots of different aspects of real estate. And I didn't work on like, you know, small little condominiums. The projects I worked on towards like halfway through my career were like half a billion dollar like new construction development rental or commercial projects with rent rolls in the billions of dollars. And mm. I would either, and that, you know, you have, that takes a whole marketing team to, you know, to promote the project. It takes a whole development team to finance the project. It takes a whole construction project mean to build the project. And then it takes a whole sales team to either sell and lease it. And I did different aspects of that. Like I got really good at, at sales. Then I went to NYU, got a continuing degree in construction project management. Then I went on to, I worked on the developer side in construction project management, got good at that, went to NYU, got a continuing degree in finance, real estate finance, and then worked on the real estate finance side of it, got really good in that, went to NYU, got a continuing ed certification in marketing, and did marketing, got really good at that, combined the ball and came a leader and managed multiple teams. And I was, so I was doing really well financially, and in New York City, I had a nice office, I had a window, I had a nice apartment, but I was an asshole. I don't know. You can bleep that out. I was, I was just, a, I was a jerk. Why I was, would I bleep? Why would I bleep that out? No, no, not at all. Now, uh, you know, where did you live in Manhattan? Um, well, I mean, I don't know if any if you lived in New York City, but I every, did. Yeah. So every two, three years, I moved to a different neighborhood. I, I did. In, yeah, I did that too. <laughs> everybody does that. Like you, that's just part of New York City. Uh, you know, like as you grow, age in New York City, different neighborhoods don't serve you. So you know, when you first move into New York City, you either live in the East Village or Murray Hill or the Upper East Side, way Upper East Side, all the way on, all the way at the corner because it's affordable and cheap, and there's all these cheap bars. Then as you age, you move into like. You know, I moved to the West Village. It's a little bit quieter. And then as I aged, I moved into Brooklyn. When, it got, when I got really old, I moved into Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights, because then it got really quiet for me. And I, so I started in Murray Hill, or excuse me, started in the East Village. Then I moved to Murray Hill. Then I moved to the Upper East Side. Then I moved to the West Village. And then I ended up in Brooklyn. Now, Brooklyn, I mean, Brooklyn Heights is absolutely gorgeous. I love it. Love that area. Um that's a very interesting journey. Very interesting journey. You know, um, I myself, uh, never really took to corporate work. Um, I would say that if I touched on it at all, I put one foot on the first rung of the corporate ladder. And I realized that as I was climbing, I'd have to always look at the ass of the guy in front of me. I didn't like that. So I decided not to climb that ladder. Now, you kind of answered the next question of how would you summarize Michael Cohan's story, Michael before Mukunda? It seems like you kind of did that, unless there's anything you wanted to add to that. It didn't happen overnight. I mean, we always talk about, like, when we tell these stories of how we changed our lives and our success and who we are today, we always think it happens overnight. And I just want to let your audience know that this took me a better part of my 30s and a little part, little of my 20s to get to where I'm at. And I'm 41 years old. So mm. it took me almost 12 years to change my life, mm. to change who I was as a person. It didn't happen like I didn't wake up tomorrow and was a different person. It was a lifelong journey of 
I ha it was a lifelong journey of what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be human? And how can I live more authentic to that? Mm -hmm. And that question happened to me when I was 29 going on 30. And I literally thought I had everything I was supposed to accomplish in terms of life. And that was just a matter of getting more stuff. I was getting married. I had a job. I was doing well in the city. We were buying a co-op apartment in Brooklyn Heights. We were doing really well. And we ended up, our marriage didn't work out and we ended up breaking up after six months. And I was 30 years old and I was just like, what the hell happened? I did everything I was supposed to do. I did everything right. I go into college. I got decent grades. I got, went, got a job. I worked hard at my job. I climbed up the ladder. Why am I still not happy? And why did I marry someone that wasn't happy? Why were we both unhappy together? And why am I still unhappy not being with her? And if I'm not happy, is life about being unhappy? Or can I find a way to become happy? Those are great questions. Um, you said something there that intrigues me. It's a story that many people, I think, struggle with and maybe never totally clarify. You said, why was I, why did I choose a woman to marry who was unhappy? And uh, at this stage, maybe you have an answer for that, some clarity around it. Yeah, um, when I, I think the, I think as people when we live our lives, you know, there's a point where we get to a, some stage of life where we look around and we just see everybody else getting married or pairing up, and we choose to pair up because we're afraid to be alone. Because one of the greatest illusions in this world is the illusion that we all know that we're going to die. We don't think it's going to happen to ourselves, but we're afraid to experience death. And so what we do is we try to do things to avoid that fear that we know is going to happen, but we don't think it's going to happen to us. And so one of those fears is the fear of dying alone. And at some point in your life, everybody sort of like kind of just gets on this autopilot where they are being controlled by their external view of success. What they think that the world around them tells them based on their upbringing, their values, and what they kind of see on TV. And that determines what they view as success externally. And because they're not aligning themselves with their internal view of success also, which can be completely different from their external view, they then go out and find someone who has the same problems of being confl having conflicting views internally and externally and form a partnership that isn't really grounded in who they really are deep down. Mm. And there's nothing, it's, there's nothing wrong with having conflicting views. So what I mean by this is, so let's use classic as an example. External view, you believe to be successful, you acquire, your, jo your job is, is, like if you're a man, is to acquire a lot of wealth, to become a wealthy investor. But your internal view of success 
is to be like a non-for-profit executive, that your internal view is to contribute to the greater good, to have a cause, to work for a non-for-profit organization or be a, like, be a leader within your, your church or your synagogue or your temple. And you ignore the internal one because the external one is what you believe is going to bring you happiness. And because of that, you're not internally fulfilled or happy. And so because you're unhappy, you feel a sense of loss and loneliness. You just go find someone that's not embodying what you truly are. And so then you both become happy, unhappy together. And so then you feed on that internal negative energy and you just get into this autopilot mode of wake up, you go to work, you come home, you eat dinner, you watch some TV and you go to bed. You take your kids to soccer on the weekends and you buy a bunch of stuff and say, why are we still not happy? And most people ignore it or eventually they get divorced. And then what they do is instead of like looking at their lives and going, okay, what's going on inside? What, what's wrong with me inside? I'm going to ignore it and I'm going to go out and like find some other, you know, external forms of happiness and then do it all over again. And what we have to realize is external happiness, although is important to fulfill, it's only temporary and it's always going to come and go. We have to focus on our internal happiness first and we have to recognize what that is and bring that and make that a priority. And when we make that internal happiness a priority, we then are able to find our external happiness naturally. Mm. And then we're able to find someone that we're able to be in a relationship with that shares our internal values, not what we think our external values are. Beautiful. And we keep trying to find that external value connection instead. That's a beautiful explanation. I love it. Thank you. Now, was there a pivotal event that kind of opened the door for you and showed you, ah, that's the path I want to take? There were a couple paths. Yoga. So there were two in the last 10 years, there were two pivotal points with my professional career and personal life and three in my personal life. And we, I'll give you the three and you can tell me which one you want to talk about. So the first one was with yoga was when I was about 31 years old, 32 years old, and I was post-divorce and I was going through a period of what I would like to call rumspringing because I was with my ex-wife in my 20s. I met her when I was 23 and we, got, and we split up when we were 29. So I'm 30 years old. I'm making... Uh, you know, almost a quarter million dollars a year, and I'm a single guy who didn't experience his 20s that much in terms of like, you know, being a bachelor. So I was going through my life just like partying, drinking, doing drugs. I mean, doing drugs, drugs. And um, my best friend, who I adore to this day, pulled me aside one day and said that I'm going to die unless I deal with my demons and I need to see someone. And for whatever reason, that kind of clicked in me. And I went to see a therapist. And this therapist was kind of this, like, New York City, like, one foot in modern, like, Harvard science and psychology and one foot in, like, Eastern philosophy. And he was this, like, really cool, like, psychologist who I didn't choose. The only reason I picked him, he was two blocks from my apartment and he accepted my health insurance. And that's why I went to see him. And he would prescribe yoga 
as a way for me to kind of work on my demons while seeing him. And that was the first pivot with that experience, which brought me into yoga. Wow. Okay. I like that. I mean, uh, because yoga became so crucial to your future and to who you are today. Yoga is yoga gave me the pra teaching yoga or practicing yoga and seeing a therapist gave me the skills and the courage to kind of have the strength to change the ladder I wanted to climb and climb up a different ladder. Mm -hmm. And without yoga, I would never have climbed down the ladder I was at. I would have continued on my path and I would have acquired a bunch of material wealth, but I would never be internally happy. My second major pivot in life was, okay, so there's four. My second major pivot in life was about two years into yoga. I was taking a workshop in New York City. I was taking a class with this great, really famous, anybody who's really into yoga, and I'm not talking about Instagram yoga, but real yoga, anybody who's into real yoga knows this woman. Her name is Sharon Gannon, and she's the founder of what's called Jiva Mukti. And we were in a workshop with her in a Q&A. And at one point, I don't know if it was me or somebody else, talked about our life in comparison to her life and the struggles that we were going through. And she basically looked at me and my friend and was like, you're not your problems. Your problems are temporary. That, and they are only a manifestation of what you want. want. Your reality is what you create, so your problems you've created. You as a human have the ability to change your problems, and change is hard, and you're gonna go through a period of unhappiness, but you're already unhappy right now because you have problems, and you're gonna be unhappy during your change, so what's the difference there? But if you work on changing and dealing with your problems, maybe one day you'll be happy. Who knows? But you're not happy now, and, and so you might as well try to change. So who cares? Just do it. I was like, oh, I'll do that. I'm, I'm miserable already, so I might as well change and be miserable and see what comes out of it. <laughs> and, and so that was the second change point in my talk. And then the third one was when I met my Swami, His Holiness Ranaath Swami. And he's the one that put me on my spiritual path that gave me the name Makunda. And that's a whole conversation we have. And then my final change was when I was 37 years old and I was a full-time yoga teacher. And I kind of was making a decent living teaching yoga, but I was getting tired, I was getting older, my body was starting to ache, and I asked myself what I liked about yoga so much, and it was about helping people transform and giving people the tools to transform their life, and yoga was my medium, and I said, how can I change the medium but keep the message, and that's how I became a life coach. So those have been the four major stages of my life mm. since my like, post-divorce. Well, you know, you said uh, pick one. I actually wouldn't pick one because they're all so beautifully related. And what did you specifically have to overcome to reinvent yourself as Mukunda? Because I'm sure while you were on that journey, there were always energies in you that were pulling you back toward something less fulfilling. I had to change everything. I'm talking about the, my friends, I, I mean, like, I had to change, I had to get all new friends. Like, my friends were not, 
they're not they weren't bad people but their lifestyle was part of my toxic toxicity mm. and so i had to get all new friends i had to develop new eating habits new develop sleeping proper better sleeping habits diet exercise i had to lose 60 pounds i had to quit smoking i had to quit drinking i had to quit doing drugs i had to learn how to save money i had to get out of credit card debt i had to get out of financial debt i had to get out of paying my back i owed like thirty thousand dollars to the irs i mean like i was a hot mess i didn't get along with my family i didn't get along i i i hadn't i i was ignorant i couldn't touch my toes you know when people say oh i can't do yoga because i can't touch my toes i'm like I couldn't touch my knees. What are you talking about? You can't do yoga. You were ahead of me. I couldn't touch my knees when I first started because I had this big giant belly in my way. I mean, like I was barely able to touch my thighs, let alone touch my knees was like a goal my teacher gave to me. Like that was the goal. One year was to try to get me to fold forward enough and remove enough belly fat that I could touch my knees. Wow. My, my teacher had a goal of not be of one day. Like my teacher gave me the goal one day of not waking up hungover. She was like, one day, you're, one day you will not wake up hungover. Just give me one day. And I was like, never going to happen. Never going to happen. And this is seven days a week I'm talking. And, mm. and, I, and then finally one day I woke up sober the next day. Like wow. I didn't go on. I didn't drink myself to sleep. Wow. You know. That's... Now, how long did it take you to make what you would consider the full transition? I mean, I know we're always... In transition, 10 years. years. Okay, okay, good. 11 years. To really get to the point where I was a different person, it took me about seven years. To really get to the point where I was successful enough to be talking about this subject matter on the phone with you, 11 years. But Mm. it took me about seven years to get to a place where I was healthy spiritually, mentally, physically, and financially. That was about seven years. Wow. Now, what does Mukunda mean? Mukunda translates as, so my full name is Mukunda Chandradas. And anybody who's initiated in the, uh, the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, which is an orthodox Hin- Indian tradition of bhakti yoga from the eastern and northeastern part of India that dates back, like fi- it's a tradition that's like 5,000 years old. And it's very deep and seeped in traditional orthodox Hindu yoga and Hindu re- and spirit, Hindu spirituality and religion. And so when you get what's called formally initiated, you take on the name Das, which translates as servant. Okay. Okay. And then Mukunda Chandra is the personification of what your spiritual teacher within the dyslipic lineage or what we call Sampradai sees as your best version of yourself or what he w- would like you to live up to. And so Mukunda Chandra Das translates as the servant who helps liberate people and shines like the moon or, or translates as helps liberate people and shines as a beacon of light. Hmm. Which is a perfect name for what I do for a living as a spiritual and psychological life coach. Like it's like exactly what he gave me as my initiated name is what I ultimately stepped into that role. Mm, mm. So it worked out good for me. 
beautiful. Well, I don't think there are any accidents. <laughs> no, there isn't, especially not with this individual. He's like, you know, if you're ever looking for an authentic spiritual being from India, he's someone you should meet. His name is His Holiness Ranunath Swami. He wrote the book A Journey Home, which is this great book that is his journey. He was a 60s kid from America who went to India and hitchhiked through the Middle East to India to find his guru. And he has these great stories and he, you know, he just personifies, you know, devotion, love, acceptance of other people and embodying like the life of like a guru that you would picture and you look for but never find. Hmm. Wow. Now, tell us, what is yoga and how can it help me or others to live a better life? Well, okay. Yoga translates as union. By and large, that's what yoga means. It just means to bring union. And so different people have different arguments of what yoga means, but it ultimately brings, means union of the mind, body, and the soul. Yoga is a warrior's path. It's not... It's, it's not what we think it is in America. It is a warrior's way. And a, what a warrior is, isn't someone who goes out and looks for a fight. That's not a warrior. That's a bully. That's a, that's a terrorist. That is, a, that, is a, that is not a warrior. A warrior is a person who lives by example that personifies honor, dignity, spirituality and will pick up a weapon to fight at the last possible moment when all other choices have been exhausted and so that's what yoga means is to become a spiritual warrior to become someone who's on the path of self-discovery and yoga is the medium way by which you as a person can learn to move your body through different physical shapes that allow you to access different states of your consciousness to begin to unravel or unlock who you are and why you think certain ways, which result in why you behave certain ways, and to examine them and to see if there are any changes you can make to your life in order to really find out who you really are. Because we're all born with six human needs. You're all, we're all born with the need for certainty, stability in our life. We're all born with the need for uncertainty, you know, vacation, travel, trying new things. That's why we like watching different TV shows or going on, watching different movies. We all have the need for love. We all have the need for significance to feel important. But we also have a need for growth and, and, and contribution. And true, our, first, our four human needs of certainty, uncertainty, love, and significance, those are our needs for survival. Growth and contribution is what we need to fulfill to, to become happy. And that is what brings fulfillment. Yoga gives you the tools to unlock and what and discover what your need of growth and what your need of contribution are to find fulfillment. I love it. You know, um, 
I never heard yoga described as uh, the the way of the warrior, but what appeals to me about it is that I took a transformational course in 2006 called Enlightened Warrior Training Camp, and they did speak about the warrior's view the way you just did, and this is you know really attracting me to explore yoga. Uh, in my own life. I know people here who teach it. Um, you're inspiring me to do that. That is really good. Well, I appreciate it. The problem with yoga, which is what you're going to probably experience, is it's a couple of different folds. One, people think yoga is supposed to be this gentle, zen-like experience. It's, you walk into a room, and there's candles, and it's soft music, and you gently stretch your body. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you need, then that's what you go for. And if you're, you're, if you're tight and you're stiff and you can't sit on the floor comfortably, you can't touch your toes, then that's the yoga that you need. Other type of yoga, which you see mostly is, you know, I like to call more like lipstick yoga or more fashion yoga. This is like what you see on Instagram and YouTube. People in ripped out body, like men in ripped out, ripped up bodies, like muscles, six pack abs, wearing tight underwear, like Calvin Klein underwear, and women in sports push up bras and like spandex. It's mostly just yoga porn, and it's just like learning how to contort your body in different ways to get a workout. Fine, if that's what you think is yoga and that's what you want, go for it. Who am I to judge? Maybe you'll be learn to be a little kinder a little bit more peaceful, awesome. What yoga really is about is, a, is it was, and it was primarily taught by the, for the military and the upper class as a way to learn to tap into your, your kinetic energy and learn how to harness your kinetic energy in order to live the life of a warrior or the life of a, what is called a satriya in yoga. And... That's why, you know, it touches on, you know, we call it prana in martial arts, it's chi. It, it talks about a, a code of life, how to live, the, like how to live morally, how to eat ethically, how to conduct oneself around other people. That's what yoga is really about. It's about following the principles of yoga. And I know great yogis who don't practice asana who are advanced in their yoga practice because they follow the moral codes of yoga, like not harming, telling the truth, not stealing, being steadfast in their behavior, like being moral, not coveting thy neighbor, and not being greedy, living mindful, living, living, like a minimal, living mindful and only taking what one needs. That's yoga. That's why it's the warrior's way. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for that. And by the way, if you put this on on Facebook or iTunes and you allow comments, you'll get 20,000 people that will argue with me about what I just said. And there will be people that will say, that's not yoga. Yoga is for everyone. And somebody else will argue with me and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Yoga is this. And yoga is the one form of, that I know of that will confuse and cause controversy amongst every person who talks about it. <laughs> good. Controversy is good. So why do we continue to suffer when our basic human needs are met? 
I mean, why do we? Because all right. So here's the fable. You as you're you're walking in the in the woods and you have no clothes on. You're starving and it's snowing outside. You come to a cabin. You knock on the door, and this person opens the door and says, "Oh my God, you're naked." It's snowing outside. You must be freezing. When was the last time you ate? Must have been yesterday. Come inside. Gives you a blanket. Now you're warm. Puts you by a fire. Puts you by a fire. Now you feel a little better. It's no longer. You have a roof over your head. No longer snowing. Gives you a bowl of stew. You eat it. Ah, <sighs> you feel so much better. You went from absolute horror to feeling good with just a little change in your life. So then your mind goes, Wow, if I get more of that. I'll be even happier. And if I get more, I'll be even happier. And we continue to try to just get more stuff to be happy. And so because we, we think that if we don't have a, more of our basic human needs, then we're never going to be truly happy and we keep chasing that rabbit for more, for more, for more. Because it's easier. It's easier to look at external cues. And we live in a culture, at least in America, and it's getting more westernized around the world, where we are surrounded by these weapons of mass distraction, where we're told to think a certain way, to continually buy more things to be happy, that the television that we see, the movies that we watch, the social media that we plug into, all said, you're only going to be happy when you date this when you look this certain way, when you own these clothes, when you drive this car, when you have this big house, when you go on these exotic vacations, and you'll finally be happy. But the truth is, that never works. Everybody's still miserable when they try to do that. And I think, and it's because it's, it's hard to look inside. It's hard to look inside your soul and look at your heart and say, who am I? What does it really mean to be happy? When all these other people around me are, are successful and they're just living horrible lives. And I'm not going to get political in America right now. But, you know, you look at the people in charge of my country and they're horrible individuals on both sides of the aisle. I'm not talking Republicans and Democrats. I'm talking about the people that lead this, this country. They are just selfish morally corrupt people that don't care about anybody but themselves. And I'm not talking and so when you are a person trying to get ahead in life, that's your example. That's your consciousness to be like them. We don't celebrate the swami or the monk or the martial arts teacher that lives humbly. And so we celebrate the other side of the spectrum and so we continually strive for them. And it's my hope, it's my optimistic hope that our consciousness is slowly shifting, which is why we see all this chaos right now, is because we're beginning to realize that happiness doesn't come from more stuff. It, becomes, it comes from being more mindful and more spiritual. Because we're miserable when we love things and use people. We're happy when we become spiritual beings who use things and love people. Mm -hmm. I agree. I love what you just said. And, um, you know, again, without getting political, but uh, today, particularly, you and I are talking on the day that America experienced the largest mass shooting in American history. Yeah. And my thoughts were these. Certainly, I was saddened by it. Certainly, my heart went out to the 
to the dead and to the wounded and to the grieving, but a question came into my mind. Why is everyone running around so confused that they can't find the quote-unquote logical explanation for what happened? My answer is, slow down, take a deep breath, and look in the mirror. The answer to what happened is in every single one of us. It's in the temper of our times. That individual, you spoke about the human needs. My feeling, they may never find a logical reason, an external reason why he did what he did. But I'm willing to bet that you were looking at a person who had lost all sense of significance, and mm. that was his stab at significance, and he succeeded. Yeah. He became he significant forever. Mm-hmm. You know? Anthony Robbins used to talk about this. I heard him say once, he said, he's a very optimistic man, and he, but he said, I don't think that violence will ever disappear because of that powerful need for significance. And some people can only find a way to fulfill that need through an act of violence. And that may be an example of what we saw today. But moving on. Moving on. What is our purpose in life and how do we find meaning? Whew. Well, Gimmick. this is, well, you know what? This is one of the questions that I think you wanted to be asked. <laughs> you gave a good question. I mean, it's a good question. And it, and my answer for these things always change. And it all depends on, they, well, they don't always change. It's how I answer the question. And it has to do with what I'm studying at any given time kind of like molds how I answer the question. And, you know, your audience, before we get into what are your what is your purpose, your audience is definitely a group of people that is trying to learn to grow as a person. And my first thing is for your audience, throw out the word self-improvement. I hate that word. I hate the word self-improvement. You are perfectly perfect the way you are with all your flaws, and wh whatever you are. You don't need to improve. I hate it. I, it, it, just, it, it drives me nuts, that whole like self-improvement. The second thing is, throw out the word, find your passion. Because that has nothing to do with your purpose in life. I have a passion for movies. I love movies. My purpose in life is not to watch movies. I have a passion for comic books. I love reading comics. Yeah, I'm a 40-year-old guy who likes reading comics. But my purpose in life is not to read comics. I have a passion for music. I love playing the guitar. I have a passion for it. I love learning different songs. But that is not my purpose in life. And the way you find your purpose in life is you have to constantly strive to learn. And so if you don't know what your purpose in life is, which is what we're going to get into next, Learn something. I don't care what it is. If it's if just pick something that you've always wanted to learn, and and start studying it. If it's you've always wanted to learn how to dance, take dance classes. If you always wanted to learn how to sing, take singing classes. If you're not sure, take learn a martial art like Taekwondo or Kung Fu. Learn something that has an end goal that gives you some sort of certification to achieve. 
when you begin to learn something, whatever it is, it helps unlock your mind to other areas of your life where you're studying one thing and that gives you some sort of insight into something else that you don't know how to figure out and it helps you solve the problem. And so your primary purpose as a human being, your first reason why you're here on earth is to learn and to grow. You were born into a, a, what's called a material body. You're not the mind and you're not the soul. The reason why we know you're not, or excuse me, you're not the mind and you're not the body, you are a soul. The reason why we know you're not the body is because do you have the same body you had when you were five years old? Uh, I actually have the same body that I had when I was 17. <laughs> so you have a different body. And, yes. and science has proven every 10 years you have a different body. So you're right. not the body because it constantly changes. Do you think the same way you thought when you were 17 year old? Do you have the same beliefs? Do you have the same goals? Or have they changed? They've changed. So you're not the mind because they changed. So the fundamental thing that is eternal, that has never changed, is the soul. And that is who you are. You are, by law and large, a spiritual being living a material life. And you came to this body at this time in this world to experience karma or experience your life to learn to grow. So your purpose is to learn. That's the beginning. Then by, and then what is you are giving at each person in this lifetime is given certain innate abilities based on their karma. Some people are born really tall. Some people are really good at analytical thought. Some people are really good at abstract thinking. Some people are really emotionally sensitive. Some people are, are born with good, you know, they're good, they're, they have ability to lead naturally. They, some people are great artists. Now, we all can learn these skills for sure. Everybody can learn to paint to a degree. Everybody can learn to lead. Everybody can learn to sing to a, to a certain degree. Everybody can learn to play a musical instrument. But we all have innate talent that's born into us. And your dharma, which means your, your righteous purpose, is to take these natural innate abilities and use them in a way for you to earn a living, but at the same time make the world around you a better place. So if you're good, if you're very, if you're good at very, like if you're good at analytics, like you're very analytical, or you're, or let's use a simpler one, if you're really good at numbers, and numbers come really natural to you, and you like calculations, your purpose in life could be to be an accountant. That doesn't mean you have to go out and become an entrepreneur means you're good at counting numbers, so your purpose in life is to become an accountant. But then how do you make the, your, the world a better place as an accountant? By working for a company that shares in your values of what it means to make the world a better place for all beings. And that is what your, goal, that is what your purpose in life is to do, is to take your natural talents, take that, and develop a skill to earn a living to then be able to help the world not just the people that believe in you and what you believe in, but everybody, even the people that disagree with you, and make them happy also, to make everybody happy. Hmm. It's a beautiful aspiration. It's a never-ending goal. And here's the great thing, though. It can shift at any time. My purpose at one point was to teach yoga. 
Then it shifted into being a health coach. Then it shifted to being a life coach. And now it's life coaching and podcasting. And eventually it can become a public speaker. It can constantly change. We don't have to be stuck in one identification. We're not the body. We're not what we do for a living. We can change that at any point. The purpose is to learn and grow. And by learning and growing, we can change what our mission in life is all the time. And then as, as long as it has a higher calling of making the world a better place, making it everybody better and happier, not having people change through your view, but making people that oppose your view happy also. Yeah, that's, that's, um, it's a very beautiful vision. Now, how do you define holistic wellness? Well, I think holistic wellness is when you take modern medicine and you take modern psychology and you take modern psychiatry and you apply it to uh, homeopathic, herbal, and Eastern, uh, Eastern body and Eastern medicine modalities that you b use both, like if you are suffering from, you know, clinical, like depression, you see a psychologist and you see a life coach. If you have some sort of like heart disease, you see a doctor and you see a, a nutritionist and you see a health coach. If you have stress, you see a psychologist and you see a meditation teacher. If you, you know, you, you look at both sides of the healing art that can solve the problem. Mm -hmm. You don't tackle it from one area. Right. So like I'm a life coach. I can help people set goals. I can help people develop healthy habits. I can help people put in systems and take steps to uh, achieve something, an area of their life that they're struggling with. But I can't help them like figure out what's going on from the past or why their parents didn't love them or why they, or why they constantly are in an abusive relationship. But I can work with a psychologist to help you. I'm on one side of the spectrum and they're on the other side of the spectrum and we can work together and that's a holistic modality. Or if you have high diabetes, you can go see a doctor to fight your diabetes and you can also see a nutritional health coach to help you lose weight. Or if you have like hy hypertension or you have stress, you can go see a, you know, a psychologist and you can go see an, ac uh, an acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. You know, that's holistic wellness. It's taking all aspects of he the healing arts and attacking it from different angles, as not just herbs. And what I see a lot of times in my world, people ignore modern science and just go to the herbs and just go to the, the East, the homeopathic and the Eastern philosophy and they ignore the, the, the science. You have to go, and so like they have mental problems, and they go into yoga, but they never go see a psychologist to deal with the roots of the problem. They just deal with the surface level that makes them feel good through yoga, but they never go deep down. And a psychologist will help you go deep down. A yoga teacher or a life coach will help the surface. You need both. You can't, you know, that's the whole goal. You, you, and so, and that's holistic wellness. Beautiful. I like it. Why, why is change and personal growth difficult, and, and why do most people fail at achieving their dreams and goals? Because it's so hard. <laughs> change is so hard because it's a long haul. 
I mean, it takes forever to change. It's 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 moving a mountain. It's not picking up a mound of dirt. And we expect change to happen overnight, and we expect people to treat us the way we want to be treated of the vision of what that change will be today. And people are never going to treat you the way you want to be. They're going to treat you the way they think you are today, not what you want to be tomorrow. And so when you go on a period of growth and you want to change your life, let's use the classic example of the easiest one for people to relate to. You want to lose weight, which is like a very common thing, because especially in America, because I think, I think the latest statistic now is what, 69% of people in, in North America, including Canada, are obese. And yes, America carries more of that burden than you guys do, and then than our than you guys. I know. Well, but. I'm not so sure about that. I'm, I'm with a health and wellness company, and that is one of the things that we address. And it's pretty bad in Canada too, believe me. Right. Yeah. And so people want to lose weight, right? Like that, because. And look, I understand why we have a, a a health epidemic of obesity and diabetes in America because the food that we put on the shelf is addictive. I mean, seriously, I mean, I'm a vegetarian and, a, and I crave McDonald's french fries. I can't eat them because they're not vegan, but I crave them because they're addictive. And I haven't had a McDonald's french fry in seven years, but every once in a while I drive by McDonald's and I crave that sugary french fry. So, uh, you know, there's, there's no wonder why we have an obesity problem. And, but let's say you are 40 pounds overweight. And you want to lose weight. And you're, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. So all your friends are overweight. And every Monday night and every Thursday, you meet up with your buddies and you watch football and you eat buffalo wings. And every Sunday, you and the family have pizza for dinner. And you want to lose weight. And so you start to go on a healthy habit. You start to eat a little bit better. That's great. You start to exercise a little bit. But now you to get to that level that you want to lose more weight, you have to start to change your lifestyle. You have to start to change who you hang out with. You have to ch start to change when you go to bed at night. You have to change your habits. And so you can't go to the bar anymore on Monday night football because you got to get up in the morning on Tuesday to go for your run or you got to go to bed at a decent hour so you can get up in the morning rested so you can go to the gym at night. So you can't go out Monday night. And then your friends tell you you're no fun. You're boring. You don't hang out anymore. You're, you're, you, you, you're not our friend anymore. And so you go, okay, I'm coming out this one time. I'm going to come out. And that one time leads into two times. And then you have to start all over again. And so you constantly get pulled back into your old habits and your old routines. And what you have to understand for change isn't about willpower. It's about taking your habits and changing the habits that will catalyze the change in who you are as a person. You know, I agree with uh, most of what you're saying. I, I mean, what we have found is that when people find it easier to make the lifestyle change, it's when they haven't just identified what they want to change, but they have a very powerful why that is usually bigger than themselves. Like 
a woman I knew or do know who lost 131 pounds because she uh, had lost the respect of her son who was ashamed to have her come to school because his friends used to laugh at his fat mother. Now, that was a powerful why. And she did it without a problem. She did it. She lost 131 pounds. Um, just as a note, though, I agree with you totally that the foods are addictive, but they're also very toxic, and the toxicity makes it hard for people to lose weight. That's another issue. Oh, I agree. And by the way, yep, having a why is a big part of it. It just I didn't want I just wanted to keep it really simple and just focus on one aspect of it. But your narrative is also a part of why change is so hard, which is what mm -hmm. we were talking about in the beginning of the call before we started recording. Mm -hmm. That you were talking about, you know, what was it you were saying about a friend? I forget. Oh uh, yeah, my friend said to me this morning. Uh, he's an actor and he wanted to express something. He said, but I'm not a writer. And I said to him, two of the most dangerous words you can ever use are the words I am. Because if you examine your I am statements, many of them come to I am not this or I am not that or I am weak or I am uh, um, unfocused. Whenever you make that statement, you're actually creating the reality that you're living into. Yeah, and that's the other reason why change is so hard is you have to change your narratives. And mm -hmm. and it's and yoga we call it samskaras. These are the automatic responses that are programmed into you due to cultural background, upbringing, life upbringing and current lifestyle. And 90% of what you think is on autopilot. Like when you get up in the morning and you brush your teeth, are you conscious of how you brush your teeth or you just brush your teeth? Hopefully we're <laughs> not conscious of it. We're just doing it. You're just doing it, right? <laughs> That's a samskara. And everything we do is a samskara. And what we have, and that includes how we think. And so we have to, at the same time, change our lifestyle choices, our habits. We have to change our thought patterns and our narrative or our story like I used to say I am easily distracted I have attention deficit hyperactive disorder I cannot change the fact that I have ADHD I just easily get distracted I am not easily distracted I am conscious of the fact that I have attention deficit hyperactive disorder and I I am doing the best to I am doing the best to stay focused on every given task and allowing myself windows of opportunity to take breaks to stay focused and I am able to focus for short periods of time very well so I change my narrative to, to I'm easily distracted to I can focus for very very well for short periods of time that's great and have you tried this one too Mukund? have you tried I am in very good company because I, some yeah. of the, the most, some of the most, the highly, most highly intelligent people, uh, happen to be dyslexic. They happen to be, you know, diagnosed with ADHD, et cetera. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm okay with having ADHD. I use it to my advantage. And I just, I, I have different habits that allow me to thrive with my challenges, like attention deficit hyperactive disorder. So I have an egg timer, and every 25 minutes, it goes off. But because mm. of my ADHD, my brain is able to change thoughts very quickly. So I'm able to do what I'm doing right now. I'm good at podcasting because I'm, I'm able to shift my mind to different topics very easily because of my ADHD. I like that. I like that. Where do you see yourself in five years? You know, I actually just had a conference, a conference call with my future business manager that I'm hiring to help strategize my next levels of business where I'm getting. Today, right now, is I'm focusing on maxing out my coaching clients. Tomorrow, I want to be a motivational speaker and teach from an authentic standpoint with that has integrity. And that's what I would like to do tomorrow. And in 10 years, I would say my ultimate vision is to move to a place with my current girlfriend where we can live a sort of holistic lifestyle where I'm doing counseling, coaching online, and we're running a non-for-profit for special needs people because that's what my girlfriend focuses on is autism for ashrams and teaching people yoga and have special needs and working that at the same time getting a message out there of helping others. Mm, so kind of what I'm doing now on a larger scale. Beautiful, beautiful. What, what is your favorite book? What is my favorite book, personal, or, or what's my favorite book to get someone jump-started and changing their habits? No, well, it could be both. I mean, if a book that has really inspired you. Well, for me, my favorite book is A Journey Home by His Holiness Radhanath Swami. That was my, that's my spiritual teacher's book, my mentor, his book on his journey to self-awakening. Um, the book I like to recommend to people when they're just kind of like, I'm stuck, I don't really know what to do, and can you give me like, you know, like two seconds worth of advice on how to get started. And I always recommend them reading The Miracle Morning by Hal Alrod. Mm-hmm. And because I, I do believe, because as, as a yoga practitioner, part of the teachings of yoga is to get up in the morning and do your morning yoga practice. It's taught in the Bhagavad Gita, but it's much more esoteric in the Bhagavad Gita. So I like how Hal Alrod distilled that into his like lifesavers. And I find that when you get up in the morning and you take a little bit of time for yourself in terms of like not checking social media, not checking emails, not watching TV, not turning on the news, that you just take some time in the morning to read a book that's going to make that's a read and to do a little light stretching and to sit somewhere quietly and to write out your thoughts and do some affirmations that if you do that every morning, your life becomes better naturally. Hmm. Yeah, that book is. Um, I I have that book as well, and it's it's uh, on a lot of. It's at the top of a lot of people's list. People who are growing and uh, pursuing a higher level of self awareness. The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. What is your favorite quote? Ah. <sighs> I, I have it on my phone. It's so cliche. That's why I decide because it's such a cliche and it's thrown around our world all the time. So I hate saying it, 
that I believe it's fundamentally true. You are the average of the five people you surround yourself with, Jim Rowan. I think it's so important to consciously make sure that you surround yourself with other like-minded people that make you better. That you seek out people that cheer you on to grow, that cheer you on to challenge yourself, that cheer you on to say, you can do more than what you think you can do. That if you want to, and, and that don't criticize you if you want to change, that cheer you on. And that's why I love that quote. And remind, every day I'm conscious, am I spending my time with people that are making me better or am I spending time with people that are tearing me down? And that's mm -hmm. not just, and I'm talking about friends, it's the books I read, it's the podcasts I listen to, it's the television I watch, it's the movies I go see, it's the uh, yoga classes I take, it's the, you know, it's everything, it's not just like who I hang out with friends-wise. Because not all my friends are into personal growth so I, and, and, and are looking to be, you know, highly successful. My one friend is a simple guy who wants, he's a stage manager for a theater in New York City and that's what makes him happy. He doesn't have a goal, he doesn't desire to be anything else but the stage manager for a Broadway theater. He makes a decent living. Like, and he's happy and he just, go, you know, like that's what he does. Not to mention that that job is a really demanding job. Yeah. Uh, um, I come from a theater background. Stage manager is, yeah, and if he's for working for a theater that he loves, uh, he probably gets a lot of satisfaction out of that. That's great. Now, do you have a favorite thought leader? I like Jordan Harbinger from The Art of Charm. I love Tony Robbins. I admire Lewis Howes from the School of Greatness. Of course, my guru, His Holiness Radhanaswamy, is up there. Um, I like Hal Arad. Those are my main thought leaders. Um, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying, uh, God, I gotta remember his name from the Good Life Project. I forget his name, I love his podcast. Because uh, it's got it's it's spiritual and yoga and business entrepreneurship, and so I'm really loving his podcast. I just can't remember his name. Give me one second. That's okay. You got quite a list there. Now, did you mention uh, what was the first one? Arbit what? Jordan Harpenter from the Art of Charm. I like him for like um, business growth in terms of like entrepreneurial leadership, social networking has nothing to do with spirituality. Okay. He, he, I, I like Lewis Howes for entrepreneurship and, and, and spirituality. I like Hal Alrod for goal setting. I like The Good Life Project for like yoga and spirituality and um, entrepreneurship. And then I like my guru, His Holiness Radha Swami for spirituality, period. And they all serve different needs for me. Fantastic, and by and and as always, Tony Robbins, who is the who is the you know father of of personal growth. Well, actually, uh, he would say it was Jim Rohn because Jim Rohn was the one who helped him to be born. Jim Rohn's uh, the grandfather of personal. Yeah, growth. that's true. That's true. Yeah, Jim Rohn and Zig Ziglar are the grandfather of personal growth. Dale Carnegie is the great grandfather of personal growth. And Tony Robbins is the father of personal growth. Well, let's go back even further. Let's go to Napoleon Hill. Let's go to uh, um, Thoreau. Oh, Thoreau. Well, Thoreau contributed a lot to that. Yeah. I mean, he, he gave us, uh, you know, 
most people live lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. If we want to go even further, if you want to trace it all the way back, it goes all the way back to the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras. Because Thoreau wrote about the Bhagavad Gita when he wrote Walden Pond. Mm. He, he, he makes a comment about it in Walden Pond. I can look up the quote. Give me one second and I'll walk over. to It's on my table. It's always on my table. It should be on the back of one of the books I have. I always have like certain books on my table. That I just kind of like look at and read. Uh, Henry David Thoreau or Walf, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I owed a magnificent day to the Bhagavad Gita. It was the fir- it was the first of books. It was as if an entire empire spoke to us. Nothing small or unworthy, but large, serene, consistent. The voice of all in- old intelligence, which in another age and climate has pondered and thus disposed of the same question, which exercises us. And Henry David Thoreau wrote, In the morning, I bathed my intellect in the stupendous and cosmology philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita in comparison with which our modern role in its literature seemed pet- puny and trivial. Beautiful. And so, like, right. So, like, all this, like, personal growth and mindset and mindfulness and who are we and what does it mean to be human and how do we live a spiritual life it all goes back to the Bhagavad Gita the Yoga Sutras and Christian mysticism unfortunately in the Judeo-Christian background we skip over and 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 make Christian mysticism verbatim but fortunately we we allow in the world yoga and Bhagavad Gita to be common knowledge. And my hope and my my um, optimism is Judeo-Christian mysticism also becomes part of our culture, not just Yoga Sutras and Bhagavad Gita, because we have to, as a society, understand all aspects of the world from a holistic standpoint of what I do impacts what you do. And I might be right, you might be right, I may be wrong, you might be wrong, we both might be wrong, or we both might be right. Who am I to judge what is right and wrong? Let's just make the world better, as long as you're not harming me and I'm not harming you, I don't care what you believe in, as long as we're making the world better. Mm-hmm. And my hope and my optimistic viewpoint is that's where we're, that's where we're going, and that's why we see all this chaos right now and all this discord is it's sort of like the last, it's this death rattle of this old world philosophy of success is, is um, success is determined by if you can push and down your neighbor, you can shout down, shout them down, you can push them down, you can shove them into the ground, that your job is to defeat other people. That your job to be successful is to defeat their uh, their their religious viewpoints. You have to convert them to your re- viewpoint. If you do that, you've won. You've you're successful in your religion. You're, if you if you conquer the people in the business world and you you become the dominant person in the business world at all costs, you're successful financially. That's old world economy and old world mindset. And my belief and optimism is we are shifting into a new world economy and a new world mindset of accepting all people's faiths and backgrounds and personal beliefs as 
okay, that I'm mature in my belief, that you don't affect my belief, but I'm, I can take value in what you believe. I totally agree with you. We are shifting. I believe that people are in chaos, confusion, and fear because yeah. they're holding on too much to certainty. And in order to make this transition, we have to go through um, uncertainty. We have to embrace it because I believe we're in a period of molting. We're shedding an identity, a skin. We're going from being caterpillars to butterflies. And that can be scary as much as it is attractive and beautiful. How can people contact you? Well, I have a free offer for your audience. If they want to take what's called a life assessment quiz, they can go to yourwellnessyogi.com backslash change. And there's a free life assessment quiz where they can take rate different areas of their life that they have satisfaction versus unsatisfaction on a scale of one to 10. Take like two minutes. It's very easy and they'll get their results emailed to them. They're not put into a newsletter funnel, so they don't have anything to worry about. And through that, they can actually book a time to talk to me on the phone about the results of their quiz and to see if um, I, there are any actionable steps that they can take to kind of change areas of life that they've scored really low, like a two or a three. And there's, there's, it's just a conversation, there's no charge, or they're not signing up for anything. I just do this because my mentor, and I had some big heavy-duty mentors that were, you know, I'm not going to name drop, but they're famous in the growth industry, and they were my mentors, and they, didn't, they worked with me for free, so I just paid them, I paid for it. Wonderful. That is very generous of you. Go to yourwellnessyogi.com forward slash change, correct? Backslash change. Or whatever the slash is. It's the normal slash on the internet. Backslash for I think it's forward slash but people know. Yeah, it's I think it's forward slash. But um yeah, that is great. That is really great. I was I normally say, are there any final thoughts? But you've given us so much. Unless you have one last insight that you want to offer us. Like a nugget. I got a great nugget. Okay. And I, all right. Anybody on this podcast listening, if you want to make a change in your life, don't make a big change. Make a little change and change with integrity. And through changing with integrity, then you get momentum. So if you don't know where to start, start simple. Like drink eight glasses of water every day or get eight hours of sleep every night or have one piece of fruit every day. Do that for one week and then add something else really small and continue to grow with momentum and integrity. And then over a course of 90 days to a year, you will make drastic change. We underestimate what we can do in a year and we overestimate what we can do in a month. Or we underestimate what we can do in five years and overestimate what we can do in one year. What it means is start slow and go for the long haul. Beautiful. That is a wonderful, wonderful nugget. Hey, thank you so much for your passion, your insights, your clarity. You've contributed so much today. Thank you again. And once again, thank you, storytellers, for spending time today with me and 
Mekunda. Please pay this forward. Let people know that they can hear this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. And at the website, there is a free gift that I have created for all of you, a downloadable free ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. During this podcast, Mikunda spoke about many books that excited him. Remember to take advantage of the offer from our sponsor, Audible. You will get a downloadable free audiobook of your choice, plus one month free trial of all of Audible service by simply going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Remember that Mukunda offered you the opportunity for a free consultation with him and the ability to take your own online self-assessment quiz by simply going to www.yourwellnessyogi.com forward slash change. I also am offering to the first three people who reach out to me and say that they listen to this podcast and would like to learn quickly how to communicate their message, their story, more powerfully to the world, I will give you a 30-minute free consultation where we will definitely take any message, any story that you're trying to express, and I will give you at least one powerful technique that will change the quality of your communication immediately to make it more compelling and set you on the path to being a stronger, more magnetic communicator. Reach out to me at lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com or l-o-u-s-c-l-u-b at gmail.com. That's loseclub at gmail.com. This week, Mekunda gave you the challenge to think about for the coming week. He said to think of one small thing that you can change. Nothing momentous, something small. That that's all you need to begin taking a step in the direction of long-term major change. And of course, to help you, ask yourself, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.